Hello and welcome to another episode of A Stab in the Dark, the UK TV podcast that investigates the worlds of crime fiction and TV crime drama. That drives a 1920s Daimler, visits English country villages, peers over its spectacles accusingly and solves murders at vicarages and still makes it home for a nice cup of tea and a slice of cake. My name is Mark Billingham and today we're at the world-renowned Theakston's Old Peculiar Crime Writing Festival in the beautiful town of Harrogate. Though let's face it, nobody here at the Old Swan Hotel is likely to see much of it because they'll either be at panels watching some of the world's best crime authors give insights into their craft in the bar or, well, in the bar. So I'm thrilled to say that we've managed to tempt one of the world's best-selling and best-loved crime writers away from the hustle and bustle and bar of the festival. And with that, it's a very warm welcome to creator of Jack Reacher and all-round top bloke, Lee Child. In today's episode, I'll be talking to Lee about the 20th anniversary of his world-straddling character, the state of play when it comes to the world of crime fiction, and whether or not Aston Villa are going to get promotion to the Premiership this season. Welcome to A Stab in the Dark. Thanks very much for joining us, Lee. Welcome to A Stab in the Dark. Now, obviously, we'll be talking Jack Reacher in a little while, but first, you've, you've already had one session here at Harrogate. You've got more to come. We see you here regularly, plenty of other crime festivals all over the world. Now, there's obviously huge demands on your time, but you must still enjoy getting out and about or you wouldn't be here, right? Yeah, totally. I enjoy it. And for the oddest reason, I come to get scared. I get, none of the crimes, none of the things that people are dreaming of, I get scared of the new talent that is chasing behind <laughs> us. It may, I, it's unbelievable. And there's so much talent in the world and you come to one of these things and you think you're doing pretty well and then you meet all these new writers just buzzing with energy and passion and I go home then and I think okay I'm going to work a lot harder now yeah, I was at a session yesterday where people are pitching unpublished right. novels to it and this woman stood up and pitched a book and everybody everybody just you just you just thought oh my god she's yeah. so good and this yeah. book isn't even out yet you know I know and you see books like that books that you just think damn why didn't I not think of that you know that what a great idea or what a great twist and um, it is inspiring. I mean, it really is. I learn a lot. I come here to learn, to be honest. Well, we have a, a, quite a lot of festivals in this country. We're spoilt for good crime fiction festivals. But what is it about this one in particular that, that keeps you coming back? Well, you've got to do a bit of inside baseball uh, analysis for that. And I think the real thing is that it is relaxed. You've got one thing at a time. Uh, every other festival I ever go to has got multiple tracks running at the same time, which produces a lot of anxiety in the attendees because they've got to decide who they want to see. Do they they want to see you do they want to see me do they want to go shopping do they want to do the sightseeing it's it's a very anxious situation but here you've got one thing at a time you've got a decent break between so it's relaxed and it's also intensely social you can actually talk to people you know you and i have been at festivals before where we actually didn't, didn't even know we were there because you don't you don't get a second but here you get plenty of time you can talk you can catch up you can meet new people talk to readers it's just the relaxation that does it for me and we're here at the Old Swan Hotel, and if listeners don't know, uh, the Old Swan, which is the venue for this festival, is the place where Agatha Christie was found in 1926, when she caused something of, of a kerfuffle and disappeared uh, from London for 11 days. It was a nationwide manhunt. And uh, Were you aware of, of the history of that? I mean, is that one of the things that makes this place special, do you think? It's kind of, although I was never really a huge Agatha Christie fan, and I, I can't imagine, you know, if I disappeared for 11 days, who would care? And so it, it, it's sort of irrelevant to me, that part, but I just... I think your publisher would care, Lee. I think... <laughs> <laughs> I think they would be putting an alert out somewhere. Well, that would be very reassuring and very comforting, but would it happen? I don't really know. <laughs> but, I, I mean, you, you mentioned how relaxed this place is. I do think there's a there's a very special atmosphere here, certainly when it comes to the interaction between readers and writers, because at, 
unlike some literary festival, mm. there, there aren't velvet ropes. There no. aren't readers over there and, and writers. That's we're all together. You know? Yeah, the difference between crime writing and literary writing is that you know we are we're actually better at it. We do it faster, better, and uh, so on. But we we're not pretentious about it. And actually, there's no point in writing unless it's read. And so, if you're writing for a reader and you don't want to talk to them, there's something wrong with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we, we we're going to go on to talk about literary versus genre uh, a little bit later on. But you've got an extra reason to be out and about this year, the 20th anniversary of Jack Reach. And I, I interviewed Ian Rankin earlier in the series, and we obviously talked about the, the 30th anniversary of Rebus. Obviously, it's a massive achievement to, to keep a series going for so long. So I'll just ask you the same thing I asked Ian. Are you hugely proud of me? I mean, is this, is this a big deal for you? It is a big deal, because if you look back at it, you know, being a realistic person, when you start out, and I'm sure you were exactly the same as this, because you've had showbiz experience, you, you, you have no idea, you can't predict it, you can't expect it, you start something out and you hope, but if it actually turns out to work, that's a rare phenomenon, and it is amazing that it's continued for 20 years, and I'm just deeply grateful about it, it means I haven't had to get another job. <laughs> Always a plus. Yes, absolutely. So what 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 has been the secret of, of, of Jack's success in particular? Think? Why do you think audiences just lap up Jack Reacher year after year? I think because he does the right thing. And I think seriously, most people are decent people. Obviously, there's lunatics around on the left or the right or whatever. But the mass of people are perfectly decent, nice people who would like to do the real thing in life. And you, if you walk down the street and you see something kicking off or some bad behavior or something, you actually don't do anything about it because you're a little inhibited. You may be a little scared. You're not capable of it. I was walking down the street one time and I, there was a, a guy and his girlfriend standing in a, in a doorway and as I passed, he slapped her. Now, what are you going to do about that, really? It's pretty tough. Or you get in a bad situation at work, what are you going to do about it? You're at work, you're going to get fired if you, if you try and intervene. So most people have this sense of frustration all the time that they're not doing what they want to do, which is the right thing. But So they turn to Reacher, Reacher will do the right thing. Whatever it costs him, he will do the right thing. And people find that, I think, attractive. They find it reassuring. They can live through him. Right, so there's a degree of wish fulfillment, you know. Absolutely. I mean, Reacher is complete wish fulfillment for me and <laughs> apparently for the reader as well. We could have done with Jack last night. There was something of a fracas uh, here, here, at the, here at the festival. A couple of drunks turned up and it, and it kicked off a little bit, all got a bit silly. Reacher would have sorted it. He would in about a second and a half. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so let's go back 20 years. Take us back uh, 20 years ago. What were you doing? Where were you going? And why the, the jump into crime fiction? Well, I was working in television at Granada Television very happily. I'd been there 18 years. It was a great job. It was a great company, and I was having a really good time. And then it was not exactly taken over, but a new management was installed, and they said something to me that made it just impossible for me to continue. They said, you're fired. Yeah, that's that's not coming back from that. No, it's always a stumbling block. (laughs) And it was that typical thing in the 1990s. They suddenly figured out, yeah, we can can get rid of this expensive old 39-year-old and get some kid to do it for a quarter of the money. And so I was out of work. And then it was a question of, okay, what do I do next? And I love entertainment. I just love that basic transaction that you are making somebody happy. Uh, You're giving somebody a good time. And I wasn't particularly bothered what exact medium it was, but I just loved that phenomenon, that that warm feeling you get if somebody is enjoying what you're doing. So I thought, what can I do that keeps me in that world that I have the skills for? And unfortunately, I didn't really have any skills. The skills I had were so closely tied to the job that I'd just been fired from that I couldn't go and get another job in another television company. And so I thought, all right, step back one step. What are you doing? And I thought... I could write a book. It's not that different from a popular TV show or a movie. Uh, So I gave it a try. 
and I really enjoyed doing it. And I hoped, you know, maybe I could get away with this for a couple of years and then have to get another job. So, and, so how long was that gap then before you have you walking out of the building of Granada? It was and, seven and months. picking up a pencil to, oh, to right. picking up the pencil. It was like one day. I, I immediately oh, right. went up to W. H. Smith, bought my pads of paper and a pencil, wrote the book. I had they give you money when they kick you out. You know, it wasn't like I was destitute. So I had seven mortgage payments in the bank, and I had to get this book written and sold within seven months. And I did it with about about six weeks to spare. <laughs> so it had never occurred, all the time you're working in television, this kind of ambition to write something had never been there? No, and you know what? I think that's my secret weapon. I never wanted to be a writer. And I, so I never grew up with that sort of baggage of the preciousness of being a writer, the the. the the illusion of what you had to do to be a writer. Uh, all I wanted to be was an entertainer. And so the switch of medium was was not a problem because I wasn't weighed down with all those preconceptions of what it meant. I didn't immediately rush out and buy a black polo neck and a black leather jacket. You know, I just wrote the book. And I think that my distancing from the actual so-called magic of writing really, really helped me. But you were a reader. Oh, totally. And that is that is the sad fact that you get people you know, of a certain age who say they want to write a book, and you ask them a question, well, have you read books all your life? And if they say no, then they have got no chance. The only preparation, the only way to learn it is to read and read and read for decades. And I had done that. But curiously, I had never really wondered where these things come from. You know, they were just books. They were in the store. They were in the library. I loved reading them. I read literally thousands and thousands of books. But I had never really contemplated, oh, okay, somebody's sitting down and writing these. Somebody's getting these published. To me, they were just there. They just appeared in in W.H. Smith or whatever it was. Exactly, yeah. And I I loved them. But then gradually, it was a nice coincidence, actually, because I, I predicted that the job would go because it was an unsustainable business model in the modern world. So I knew that sooner or later it would come to an end. And about five years before, I started reading the Travis McGee series by John McDonald. And I loved those books as books, but I also sort of saw them as a blueprint. Suddenly I was seeing the skeleton under the skin. I I saw what he was doing. I saw why he was doing it. And it, it tempted me to think, yeah, okay, I could maybe do this. Well, you were, you were talking about uh, that what you loved was was things that entertained people, that made people happy. You'd worked on shows, a lot of shows like that, uh, when you were at Granada, Prime Suspect and Cracker and stuff like that. And did those sort of shows sort of influence you in t- when you did pick up that pencil and that pad and sit down to write Killing Floor? Yeah, although there's a big gap between television and, and, and writing and reading. They're two different animals, except that you do learn in television it's not about you, it's about the audience. And that was an important lesson. And it, it taught me, I mean, look at a, a, you know, a typical episode of Cracker or something like that. There's a problem, it's chaos, it's, it's all bad. And then because of somebody's efforts and somebody's perseverance, it becomes good. There's a solution, there, there's a conclusion, there's closure. The bad guy is caught, the bad guy is punished. And it struck me that that is actually the, the appeal of crime fiction, because you don't get that in real life. If your car is ripped off, you won't get it back. They won't catch the guy. If your house is burgled, you'll never see your watch again. But in a book, yes, you will. Uh, They will catch the bad guy. And if it's a Reacher book, he'll shoot him in the head. And you will get your car back or your watch back. (laughs) And there is satisfaction in that. There's consolation. We're turning to fiction for what we do not get in real life. And it's incredibly valuable to people. 
Did did you see Reacher uh, by the time you'd finished Killing Floor? Did you see Reacher as a long running character? Did you think, I, you know, I want to write secretly, about him again? Yeah, secretly, I definitely wanted to keep him going. But I just, you know, the events of Killing Floor are so sort of monumental. There's there's fires, explosions, there's, you know, all kinds of things. I thought, no, we can't put this guy seriously. He can't do this like every year. But actually, yeah, you, you can. You know, people people give you one free pass for every book, which they expect it to be meticulously realistic, apart from they'll give you one get-out-of-jail-free card, which is that Reacher, who has no official involvement with anything, he's not a cop, he's not an FBI agent or anything like that, he should not be involved with anything. But they let him blunder into one coincidence at the beginning of the book, and they forgive that, and then the rest of the book better be pretty uh, solid. And there you are, so you're a Brummie. You've been working in Granada, so you're working in Manchester, I guess. Mm -hmm. Why the decision to to set books in the States? Well, that was a kind of uh, character-based decision because Reacher is is basically the ancient character, the noble loner, the knight-errant, the mysterious stranger who shows up in the nick of time. And that requires a sort of empty geography. It requires a frontier feeling. And you can find that character way back in Europe. You know, five, six hundred years ago, that character existed in Europe. But then as Europe became more and more densely populated and kind of more settled and civilized, there was no frontier left anymore. There was none of that openness and chaos. So the character was forced out, essentially, to America. Right. So uh, Americans think, yeah, this is an American paradigm. This is a Western character. Not Shane and that kind of Absolutely thing. Absolutely, yeah. Shane. Any Zane Grey character, yeah. you know, the, the mysterious rider who comes in off the range and solves the problem. They claim that character. And I say, wait a minute, actually, you imported that character. You, you took it from medieval Europe, who did not invent it either. They took it from the Scandinavian legends. And they took it from the Anglo-Saxon legends. It goes way back into history. You could even argue all these religious myths are exactly the same thing. The savior comes along. And it seems to me a universal human paradigm. People want this character. That's why he works. So how many books, 22 Reacher books, have there been moments during this? I know that very famously, you, you know, you told your publisher there were only going to be 21. And, yeah. and, and, and we heard last night you received the, the Outstanding Achievement Award and Larry Findlay, who kind of presented you with it, said, you know, there were going to be 21 and we were watching the, the clocks ticking down and, oh, this is going to be the last one. Then you took him out and said, let's have champagne and said <laughs> there were going to be some more. But, but during the course of that, I don't know, book seven, book 12, whatever, did you, did you ever think, oh, sod this, I've had enough? Not really, because the flexibility built into Reacher is huge, you know, and I do admire, you know, for instance, what you do with with yours and what Ian Rankin does with his, which is that those are more fixed than mine. You know, your guys have a job, your guys have a location, and I mine don't. You know, Reacher has no job or location, so he can be anywhere and do anything, which gives me tremendous flexibility. Yeah, that's such a smart decision you made, Lee. That you know, we've talked about this before, but the fact that you made him someone who keeps moving. He's moving, he's like a shark. So Every book is different. The landscape is different, Absolutely. crucially. He's in the middle of the desert. He's in a frozen town, and he's, he's in New York, wherever, you know. And what we call concept can be different. You know, it can be high concept in terms of it, the FBI can be involved. The White House can be involved. It can be all sort of glossy and glamorous. And then the next book can be some dusty, no-account town in, in the end of Texas or something where, you know, they haven't seen the police in 100 years. But you're still, you know, you're still writing Jack Reacher book after Jack Reacher book, and you still, we all know because they're out there, there are plenty of series that... that 
do go past their sell-by date mm. and there are writers that have written two or three books too many. Are you aware when you sit down every day on the same day every year to start that new Reacher book, how am I going to make this one different? What am I going to do to keep it fresh? Well, that's why I said 21 in the first place, because I absolutely believe in that showbiz maxim, leave them wanting more. Do not be the guy that sticks around for a year too long. Don't be the embarrassing guy who should have quit last year. Yeah. <laughs> so that's why I, I said 21. I wanted to give myself a limit because... I did not want to get into that situation. And then it's about the reader. You know, it's a contract with the reader. The reader wanted more. And I feel, as a writer, the servant of the reader. I feel humble about it. If the reader wants something, who am I to say no? So that's why I continued. And the freshness, yeah, I sit down with exactly the same terror at the blank page, which I think is necessary. If you find a writer who's not feeling afraid of starting a new book or not worried about it as you go along, that is the writer who's lost it. You know, we all feel anxious about it. I know I know that if I caught you in, in the middle of when you're writing, you're going to tell me, this is the worst thing I've ever done. It's awful. It's terrible. It's not working. If you don't feel like that, uh -huh. then you're in trouble. Yeah. But you do. the thing is, you do, you sit down and you start it. That terror of the blank page doesn't last very long. Obviously, I mean, I've read, uh, Richard said nothing, you know, Andy Martin's great book about, about your writing process, and you just go. I do. You don't sit there angsting about waiting for the muse to strike. Or the, no, you know, you know, that's not available to us, the muse thing. <laughs> <laughs> That's not our thing at all. We, I start, I, I try and get a good first paragraph. And then from that point on, it's, it's like life itself. You do not know what's going to happen. I mean, literally, we do not know what's going to happen in the next half hour. This building could go on fire. Anything could happen. There could be another fight. Who knows? So I just start out and I see what happens. Something happens and Reacher deals with it. And, and I reach the end of the book eventually. And is there, is there an end in sight now? Or have you just given up that idea of saying there will be X many books? Well, you know, I used to have a thing. I, I, I ran into a terrible thing a couple of years in, in succession where I, was, I launched a new book. I was about to go on tour. And I would I, two years in a row, I developed a terrible toothache. And I had to stop at an emergency dentist along the way and have, have a tooth pulled. So I'm now saying I will keep on writing Reacher books until all my teeth are falling out. <laughs> I've got Lee Charlby today. Hello, how are you? Um, no, that, that that really rings a lot of bells. That I, you know, that you know, as you not wanting to be the shadow that keep that keeps writing. One of the best pieces of advice I, I, I was ever given. It was actually given to me by an, a comedian back when I was doing stand up. But I think it really works with books too. Is if it's going badly, get off. If it's going well, get off. Yeah, you know, exactly. It's, it's, yeah. it's great advice, I think. It is great. And, and I think you have a huge benefit in terms of having been a stand-up comedian because that is, is writing in, in a nutshell. It's a microcosm. It's about, uh, about tantalising, teasing, delay, and then delivery of the reveal, the punchline. And you do it in, in 30 seconds for a joke. You do it in 300 pages for a book. But it's the same process. Absolutely. When you reveal information, timing, all, and actually keeping the pages turning, starting well, all that stuff. It's exactly the same as a little stand-up act in, in you know. it is exactly the same and then in a wider context as you say you do not want to be the guy who stands there while nobody's laughing yeah yeah well we'll be talking lots more to lee after the break but before then it's that time in the show when our roving reporter goes out and about to bring you more of the best crime fiction and tv crime drama so with that it's over to our man with the spyglass paul hirons who's making a nuisance of himself in and around the festival here at harrogate paul who have you bumped into in the bar sorry on your rounds <laughs> Yes, thank you, Mark. I'm out here in the garden. Now, the sun was shining, but it's just gone in. But I managed to get hold of Mari Hanna, the award-winning writer of the Kate Daniels series. Mari, good morning. Welcome to A Stab in the Dark. Good morning. Now, um, I'm interested in your role in this festival because you're on the committee, but you've been, you've been kind of fulfilling a specific role this year. 
Yes, that's right. I'm festival reader in residence. Um, actually, this is my second year, um, and it's it's been great. Um, obviously, my it, that involves me going out on tour with a book that we choose every year. Last year, it was uh, P.D. James and Unsuitable Job for a Woman, and uh, this year we've been celebrating Ian Rankin's thirtieth anniversary with his eighth novel, Black and Blue. That's what you kind of get when you talk to writers who attend this festival and other festivals actually, but particularly this festival, the interaction with the readers. What has been the experience like for you kind of getting it? What, tell us some of the places that you've been first of all. Well, um, n- normally we, we travel the northeast and, uh, and Yorkshire, so um, we try to reach the areas that don't normally get an event, um, perhaps who are a bit more deprived, not particularly the inner cities, but the, the libraries where you know they don't get this kind of input and uh, we're trying to sort of get everybody reading the same book at the same time and so it's a lot of readers groups and obviously people who pick up a leaflet in the library and it's been it's been fantastic and we end with a an event here at uh, Theakston's um, which was well attended yesterday we had over 75 people it was absolutely brilliant and and they do and they get engaged you know in the conversation it's an event for them rather than me talking to them yes I introduce it but then we sort of have a discussion and it's all about joining in that big discussion. It must be very rewarding for you as a writer to interact with readers and especially in this role it must be fantastic. Yes it is and I mean I've all I've always been a champion of uh, libraries and you know obviously you know libraries library services are being cut left right and centre. I started off with my debut I started off um, with a sort of an event called Read Regional where and my local um, new writing agency um, put me into libraries right from the start to sort of engage with, with librarians and readers. So I'm used to it. And um, I don't know if you know this, but I've just picked up the uh, dagger in the library, uh, which is amazing. I did hear that. So very, that's <laughs> congratulations. That's amazing. I know, that well, amazing. Uh, I mean, it's librarians and, and readers who put me there. So, mm. you know, big, great, you know, grateful thanks to them. Well, you mentioned that you've just been nominated for this award. Uh, let's talk about your, your books and your creation, Kate Daniels. Where are we at in the series? Gallows Drop came out this year or last year? Is that uh, Gallows Drop came out last November right, in hardback okay. mm-hmm. and it'll come out in uh, paperback in October. Um, I have penned half another Kate Daniels, but um, I've just recently moved publisher. I moved from Pam Mullen to Orion, so I'm actually currently writing a new series but um but kate will go on and um hopefully she may even go on the telly uh, because hearing whispers about that well um three years ago um sprout pictures uh which is stephen fry's production company got in touch and said they they wanted to meet and we've been working together ever since and as we speak there is a screenwriter scribbling away on Kate at the minute. So, so you're enjoying yourself at the festival and there's a screenwriter somewhere. <laughs> Doing all the hard work. Locked away. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, that's exciting, right? I know it is very exciting, but I think um, until the first day of photography, I won't count my chickens because I know lots of people get optioned and, you know, you just have to keep your feet on the floor and hope. 
That's right. Well, uh, as you can probably hear, the, the church bells are chiming away know, in the background. What a picture-perfect scene. We're in front of this fantastic old Victorian hotel. It's kind of nice-ish weather. Uh, Murray... And it's been brilliant because well, there's 16,000 people yeah. through this weekend. And the weather hasn't been marvellous, but you know what? It's the people and the writers that make the festival and and the fantastic committee and all the staff that work for Thiexton's. I don't know how we all, you know, I mean, obviously I'm involved in some of, you know, what goes on and, you know, the, the programming, but the girls on the ground who actually keep this moving year on year and then they are absolutely brilliant so just to recap real quick you've got a new kate daniels coming out this year this autumn is that correct i have no no um the yes i've got the paperback but in november i've got the follow-up to the silent room uh, which was a another well it was supposed to be a standalone right. but people loved it and so i'm following up with that one in november and in march I've got The Lost, which is my first Orion title coming out, um, you know, featuring two brand new characters who I, I think everybody will love, I hope. Well, you're a busy lady, obviously. <laughs> uh, Mari, thank you so much for joining us. And with that, it's back to you, Mark, in the studio. Thanks, Paul, and I will see you in the bar later. I'm back with my very special guest, Lee Child. Now, Lee, since we're at Harrogate celebrating the crime novel, um, when people say that the, the kind of work we do, the kind of work that's being celebrated here, isn't literary, or write it off as light fiction or a guilty pleasure or whatever, how does that sit with you? I think I know how it sits with you, but I'm going to ask you anyway. I just think it's completely irrational and illogical. I mean, what they're saying is to do something that needs to appeal to a huge number of people is somehow easier than doing something that needs to appeal to a very small number of people. It just makes no sense. You know, you and I both come from Birmingham, which is the which is a car town. And look at a Rolls-Royce. You're always going to find enough mugs to buy a Rolls-Royce, whatever the price is. You've got to make a Ford Escort or a family car. You've got to do it exactly right because that thing has got to sell millions. And it's a lot harder to do the thing that sells millions than the thing that sells thousands. That seems obvious to me. So I cannot understand why people think it's... It's easier for us. It's actually, and our readers are, I mean, we've got loads of dedicated crime readers, no doubt about that. But we also reach people that are really not particularly skilled readers or particularly enthusiastic readers. And if you're a literary person, if you're a literary reader, you don't expect to really like a book 100%. If you like it 85 and 90%, then that's brilliant. If somebody, if a literary reader reads a book that's just pretty bad, they put it down and pick up the next one. If one of our readers reads a book that's really bad, they'll maybe never read again. Yeah. They go to video games or streaming or uh, whatever, and they may never return to reading. So I think our job is is so much harder, and therefore the achievement that, that we and we're pretty good. You know, we do some so great, good, solid work, and to suggest that that's somehow easy formulaic i hate this word crank out uh -huh. you know it's just ridiculous to me yeah oh they've bashed out another one or whatever yeah. it is. They, i i always think one of the things is uh, i sometimes catch people reading difficult novels and in inverted commas plowing through them even though they're not actually enjoying them because they think there's something wrong with them yeah it's their fault like they're not getting it nobody ever plowed through a crime novel no they didn't they, they either put it aside or they love it and that's a very crucial distinction uh, and it took me a little while to... Ca I was one of those middle-class kids, you know, with a with that 
education that we used to get. I used to feel guilty if I didn't feel, finish a book. And it took me a long time. I mean, literally, I was probably in my 30s before I realized, no, it's not my fault. Uh-huh. I, I have an argument with my wife regularly where I'll say, are you enjoying that book? And she says, no. And I say, why are you reading it then? She says, it's not going to beat me. Yeah, and I've just yeah. never understood that like it's a war of attrition. You know, if you're not enjoying it, that reader's not done, that writer's not done their job. Put it down, pick up another one. That's exactly right. The writer has not done his job. And uh, I think largely we do our job and we do it pretty well. And, and, and that's why I think, you know, the sort of snobbery we've been talking about does annoy me so much. There was a roundup. I think it's like in the Times or something a few months ago. It was either like a summer roundup or a Christmas roundup or whatever it was. And there they was categories. So, you know, travel books and humor books, literary fiction. And then it had then it had the crime and thriller thing, which it, and it used a German phrase. I don't know what the German phrase was, but I know it translates as disposable yeah. fiction. And I just and we're talking it had right brilliant writers in yourself, Michael Connolly, fantastic writers, disposable. Yeah, and I saw a what was supposed to be a good review, actually. You know, it was it was presented as a good review it said somebody's book more than a mere thriller <laughs> i mean thank you so while we're while we're bigging up crime fiction obviously we're gonna we're gonna big it up your man of reads a hell of a lot uh, as well as attending festivals and conventions um and and somebody uh, intimated the other day that you read a, almost a book a day how the hell do you find enough time you, do you sleep I, uh, yeah i do sleep <laughs> but i'm a quick reader and i just uh, i just love to read i always have and i i it's like breathing to me. And I, I'm at a severe disadvantage when people start talking about television, for instance, now, because I love television. I've worked in television. I, I love it. I've got no problem with television, but give me a choice. I'll read instead. So a lot of people are talking about the latest shows, and I haven't seen them because when it comes to it, if I've got an evening off, number one would be reading, number two would be music, and number three would be television. And I very rarely get past number one. And you, you know, you're, you're always someone who keeps abreast of what's happening in crime fiction. You remind me in a way of, El- one of the things I love about Elton John is that Elton John, hugely successful as he is, will still go into HMV or whatever it was and, and buy the latest CDs. In fact, buying like nine copies of each, so he's got one for each of his houses. <laughs> um, but, he's, but he's abreast of it all. He wants to know what's out there. That's the only real way to do it, in my opinion. If you're in it, you, you better be in it, and, and you better know it, and you better be al- alive and open to the new stuff coming along. Otherwise, you just become a fossil. So what, I mean, it's a big question, this, but what do you think is the, the sort of state of play with, with crime fiction? I mean, are, we, are we in a good place? I think we're better than ever. I think it's better than ever, and particularly better than ever this year. I've had a really interesting year this year, because as you know, I, I, I will read you, I'll read Michael Connolly, all my friends, I will read as their books come out or hopefully advanced copies. And I've been doing that this year, stuff that's been written in the last, say, six to nine months, and it's amazingly good. Typically, you would expect one or two to hit a new high, mm-hmm. and you would expect the rest to be the usual solid standard. But this year, it's all good. And I'm wondering, why is that? Partly because we are just getting, it's just on fire, you know, the, <clears throat> the engine is really turning over. But I also think partly because the world outside is so bad at the moment that we, as writers, we are burrowing deeper and deeper into invention just to get away from the, the real world. Yeah. And probably as readers, we're just anxious to escape that little bit more. So in a way, for two reasons, partly because politics and all that is so bad at the moment, and partly because it's a, it's a self-reinforcing thing. As I said, I come here to be scared by the new people, and we're all together for, for the weekend, and, and you just get this sense of tremendous energy in the genre at the moment. So do you get a sense of what's coming down the, the pike in terms of trends? or what? I mean, obviously, well, you know, women, the domestic I, thriller is, is huge at the minute. Is that, is that going to continue? Do you think? I think so, yeah. I think we're seeing... I mean, women have always been a huge part of crime fiction. 
fiction we were just talking about, Ag- Agatha Christie, and you know, you can go down the decades mentioning one great woman writer after another. But at the moment, it seems that women are, are feeling they really just they have totally broken through and they are doing great work. And so that is expanding the boundaries a lot. Um, you know, I could never write that kind of domestic noir because I don't really have a domestic life. I don't really care about that kind of stuff, but I love to read it. And I, I, you know, for instance, I just read a completely random uh, advanced copy that was sent to me the other day by a writer called J.T. Ellison, who you may know from the American circuit, who has been, a, she was a, a kind of midlist writer, and I don't think she would be offended if I say, you know, not really going places, but she's come out with a book called Lie to Me, which is just sensational. And it has that X factor where you literally cannot put it down. Right, that's always I, a good thing. <laughs> I mean, it, it was literally a book where I did not eat dinner because I wanted to finish it. It always strikes me that with with genre fiction, obviously we're talking about crime fiction here in particular, there are are kind of genuine relationships between reader and writer that perhaps you don't get anywhere else. I think so. Because the whole, anyway, the whole relationship between a writer and a reader is very special. Because if you think about it, the reader is doing at least half the work. I mean, literally, they're burning calories in their brain to construct the story in their own imagination at our prompt. So it really is a partnership and it's a very close relationship. And they're also, um, they're honest. You know, this is a big genre and it's a very wide genre and there's, there's variation in quality and these people are not afraid to tell you. They'll, they'll say, I did not like that one. And they, t- they take the characters to heart. I mean, especially when we're talking about oh. somebody like Reacher who's been around so long. One of my abiding memories is uh, when we both contributed to that book, Books to Die For, and there was a massive signing about you. And I was sitting next to you and they were coming past me and I was scribbling and then it's just stopping in front of you. And this is just before the first Jack Reacher movie came out, screaming in your face, a lot of them. Yeah. Just, How could you? What are you? And you were endlessly polite and going, "Hey, wait till you've seen the movie and whatever." But they were they took it personally. Yeah, they and I think literally they own the character just as much as I do because, like I said, it is happening in their head, and therefore the character is theirs as much as mine. And you've had this, I'm sure, with the TV adaptations that people who have a particular image are, are going to say that's not my image, and it, it offends them most most disastrously you know it's their it's their thing has been trashed somehow but it's flattering and, and totally that's what, that's what makes reading unique right you've yeah. got a different picture in their head totally flattering and it proves the process is working that if they have got a very detailed picture of the guy and if by some freak chance tom cruise does not look like that image they're going to let me know where, where do you think so jack sits in in this current landscape in the in the, in the 22nd book uh, night school you went back to 96 where does the midnight line which is coming out in autumn take us it's the current day story it's uh, and as i you know the downside of the reach of flexibility is that how do i get him involved you know because it is a bit of a coincidence that he's just walking down the street and sees some horrendous things so how do i get him involved and i I got him involved this time. I just had this idea. He's walking down the street, and he passes a pawn shop. And in the pawn shop, all that sad stuff, you know, you've got those old guitars that nobody really played, and you've got all that, you know, maybe a trumpet or whatever. And, and electrical goods, lots of tools, yeah, old tools. I know, all, all, that, all that sad stuff. And there's trays of, of cheap jewelry. Uh, and this is in America, so they have what they call class rings, which is when you graduate high school or when you graduate college or if you're – if your, you know, if your college football team wins the competition, you get a ring, and it's usually huge, and it's gaudy, and it's horrible, and after a while, you, you pawn it. 
But amongst this tray of junk is a West Point 2005 class ring, West Point being the U.S. military academy, the, the equivalent of Sandhurst in this country. Four extremely hard years, and at the end of it, you, you become a military officer and you get the ring. And this is a tiny ring, so this is a woman cadet. Now, why would that woman pawn a ring? What kind of misfortune or bad circumstance made her pawn that ring? And Reach is just puzzled about that. So he goes in and he, he buys the ring and he te- says to the pawnbroker, where did he get this from? And, of course, the pawnbroker won't tell him, and so Reach persuades him to... To part with that information. <laughs> of course he does. <laughs> and it's then basically just he's hunting down the owner of the ring, down the chain of possession. This guy gave it to this guy who gave it to this guy. And he's working his way backward and he wants to find the woman and return the ring. It's as simple as that. Oh, it's a fantastic opening. Is that it first person, third person? It's third person, yeah, because we need to see uh, what's going on elsewhere sometimes. So we're not far away from 1st of September, which is traditionally the date you sit down and yeah, back to yeah. the laptop again. <laughs> yeah, and you're going to say, what's it going to be? And I'm saying... No, that, I'm not going to say This that, is but. July, so I have no idea. <laughs> With a bit of luck, I'll get, I'll get some glimmer of a start in August and I'll, I'll sit down on the 1st of September and do that first sentence and the first paragraph and then I'll be back where I always am thinking, all right, what's the second paragraph? What's and, the third paragraph? Well, you're somebody who look, clearly looks forward, but if you, if you were to imagine yourself 20 years ago... If you were to go back and and write Killing Floor, would you write it any differently? That's a really great question. And I was once asked that on a panel, you know, the, where, where there's four writers sitting there and you, you get asked the same question. And, if, you know, there are bad things in Killing Floor. There, there are things that I, I now would be a bit embarrassed about. But it's an odd question because if you – would I change it now? Actually, no, I wouldn't because you asked me that question again five years from now, I would want to change it again and again yeah. and again. And I think you've got to face the fact that the book is who you were the year that you wrote it. It's exactly like finding, you know, in the back of your closet, you find a shoebox full of old photographs from the 1970s with the terrible hair and the terrible clothes. You can't change it. That's who you were. And it's the same with the book. Killing Floor was who I was when I was writing it. And to change it would be futile because I'd keep on changing it. So if you ever come across one of those readers, uh, rare as unicorns, who go, I've never read anything you've written, Mr. Child, where would you tell them to start? I'm contractually obliged to say start with the current hardcover because that's the most expensive. <laughs> but buy that, and at the same time, go back and buy the paperback of Killing Floor. Yeah, or they can start... I mean, most people are quite orderly in their habits, and they, they, they read whichever one catches their eye, usually the one that's being promoted at the moment, and they read that, they enjoy it, and then they go back and, and start, start with Killing Floor, which I just love because, you know, I wrote that book on my dining room table in pencil all those years ago, and it's got legs that's still earning. Have you still got that those pads with the I've with the original handwritten have, manuscript? Yeah, the pencil manuscript, and I've still got the pencil. It's now about two <laughs> inches long. And get this, it was once Esquire magazine in the UK wanted to do a story about the process, and they wanted to photograph the pencil. So I FedExed the pencil to London. They photographed it and FedExed it back. <laughs> well, we're almost we're almost done, Lee. Obviously, I've got to ask you before we finish what what the Villas prospects next season they're not in a good place are they they're really not and it's crucial this year crucial if you don't get out this year we're there forever and uh, I think it's so it's very important we got you know football is such a weird thing got John Terry now I've hated the guy for 15 years now I've got to like him and hopefully he will help yeah when I read when I read that I thought of you I thought if Terry had been transferred to Wolves I would not be a happy man right you know you need that experience we do and, and maybe that's the thing that we lack that kind of that kind of backbone and savvy 
and then with a bit of luck, he, he will help and then hopefully disappear. Well, let's see what happens. Now, as promised, in each episode, we ask our guests to come along with recommendations for a good read uh, and maybe a good watch. So, Lee, we've talked about how much you read, but what have you read recently that you would recommend to our listeners? You've already recommended that J.T. Ellison book. Anything else? I would. I, I love books that I couldn't do myself. You know, a lot of books you feel close that you could more or less have done them, or they're close enough to what you do that you you can. It's like watching a DVD with a commentary track switched on. You know, you've got a voice in your head, and sort of criticizing as you go along. So I like a book that is not exactly what I could have done. And my favorite recently is Defectors by Joe Cannon, right? Which is. Um, it's about American spies, but it's very much the Kim Philby story. You know, you are you're a Russian spy, and then all of a sudden you're about to be find, found out, so you flee to Moscow, and now you've got to live in Moscow, and uh, it ain't necessarily fun. And what about something you might have seen on TV? Again, I know you don't have time yeah, to watch I, a lot of TV, but... I, uh, in a weird sort of way, there's a, there's a guy, maybe you know him too, a guy called Craig Johnson who wrote Longmire which I, I saw I, on, on one of the streaming channels, I can't remember which one, and it's really a fairly fairly almost cosy-ish sort of uh, series set in the West about a sheriff called Walt Longmire set in Wyoming, and it has a real charm to it. I really, uh, there was just something, some X factor about it that I really liked. So check out Longmire. Okay, well, that's about it for this episode of A Stab in the Dark. In this episode, we've learned that Lee wants FedEx to stubby pencil halfway around the world and isn't altogether happy about John Terry joining Aston Villa. We'll be back again soon, but in the meantime, you can find out more about A Stab in the Dark at uktv.co.uk slash A Stab in the Dark, or you can get in touch with us on Twitter, hashtag A Stab in the Dark. Plus, don't forget to subscribe and review us on your podcast app. If you like our podcast, please review it rate us on your podcast app it really does make a difference if you don't like us just remember that the man who created jack reacher is a personal friend of mine and he can kill you just by looking at you funny and just a quick reminder you can watch the best crime drama every day on uk tv channels alibi and drama so with that it's a huge thank you to my very special guest lee child and thanks to our producers paul hirons joel porter and john lemon my name's mark billingham and thanks for listening Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.